Hi everyone, your old pal Will here. My dear friend Luke would be very upset with me if I didn't tell you what's happening on the Michael and Us Patreon page. For the low, low price of five Yankee dollars a month, you can get an extra episode every week. Recent Patreon-exclusive episodes have covered such topics as the Louis Bunuel Salvador Dali classic L'Age d'Or, the movie that nearly got its financiers excommunicated from the Catholic Church, as well as the Kids in the Hall movie Brain Candy, and a deep dive into the October Crisis in Canada. This on top of years of bonus content, including episodes on everything from Paths of Glory to Crumb. Patreon.com slash Mike Linus. Here endeth the commercial. Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. This is at long last the Forrest Gump episode, more than 300 episodes in. And I'd like to tell you just a little bit about how we got here because Forrest Gump, I think it's been in our back pocket <laughs> since 2016, I want to say. Uh, I went to see the Elvis movie this week. Baz Luhrmann's biopic of Elvis Presley, co starring friend of the show Tom Hanks. And <laughs> I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah, he plays Colonel Tom Parker. And uh, I, I, I kind of enjoyed the movie, you know, sue me. I thought it was fun. A Baz Luhrmann movie about Elvis is probably just those two things as selling points. There are probably no two things that would make me less inclined to want to see a movie. Well, listen, I'm not going to sit here and litigate Elvis with you, uh, the, the movie or the man. <laughs> But, you know, the Elvis movie, it is a biopic cranked up to 11. It fully leans into the cliches of the biopic genre. It goes all in on them. And one of the things it does that biopics do of mid to late 20th century figures is it takes you on that tour of the familiar signposts of mid to late 20th century America. The civil rights movement is in there. The Beatles invasion is in there. The murders of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. There's a hilarious scene where Elvis is in a hospital bed and he's watching a news report about Altamont while Colonel Parker next to him is reading a newspaper that has Sharon Tate's murder on the front cover. <laughs> you know, it, like, it, let's, it, let's just cram it all in there. It's, uh, it's the end of the 60s. I don't know if you if you get it, but it's it's the end of the 60s. Folks, the flower power generation is coming up against reality. I brought this up many times before, but I mean, this this seems like a good moment to bring up my thing about like, this sounds like, you know, drugstore counter magazines, the movie, you know, <laughs> like when you go to the drugstore and you, there's all those magazines and there's only like a handful of things they ever seem to be about. Like somehow every day is the 50th anniversary of the Beatles being on Ed Sullivan. Every day is the anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. It's another occasion to celebrate Marilyn Monroe or, yeah, I don't know, Mark Bobby Kennedy's assassination. Or, uh, I don't know, it's time to read like about the moon landing for the hundredth time or whatever. And it's like, it's a reminder of how much our culture and our politics are still dominated by people of a certain generation who are just kind of consuming uh, the same nostalgia again and again and again. And by extension, so much of culture and politics just end up sort of powering themselves on those same nostalgic fumes. The Elvis movie is doing pretty well. I think it's pleasing people in a way that's sort of similar to how the Top Gun movie is pleasing people. It's a big movie movie. It's a heavy-duty movie with all the movie stuff and the movie cliches. And it's backwards-looking, you know? 
It's a nostalgic enterprise. I mean, the the new Top Gun movie tries to find a way to fit its nostalgia into like this current moment of decline. I don't think the Elvis movie does that exactly. It's like a full-on, let's twist again like we did last <laughs> summer movie. <laughs> And it was a little strange to watch this nostalgic enterprise that, you know, goes through all the all the famous moments, all the all the famous stuff that we all know, the Time Life beautifully bound magazine at at the corner store version of history during this moment when I think everyone is feeling pretty bad. (laughs) The collector's edition. Yeah, it's it's like for our friends, our neighbors uh, south of the border. (laughs) Yeah, happy Canada Day, by the way. It's been a very difficult time for them. There's been this onslaught of Supreme Court decisions, all these 6-3 decisions that are just, you know, they're going they're going whole hog. I mean, not only has Roe v. Wade been overturned, there was the horrible ruling about the EPA this week that the EPA can't they can't track emissions anymore. Yeah, there's this thing about uh, they're they're taking this case, which you know, if there's a you know, would be another 6-3 ruling on this, uh, state legislatures will basically be able to just decide who wins an election in that particular state um, through a simple majority vote. So this is like transplanting the model uh, that now exists federally, where, you know, you have all these counter-majoritarian institutions, whether we're talking about the Senate or now uh, the Supreme Court, which is just sort of ruling by minority fiat on behalf of, I don't know, 20% of the country or something. It's taking that and then transplanting it down to kind of the state and local level, such that in the future, you could have these gerrymandered state houses where, you know, Republicans get 60% of the seats with 43% of the vote or something then just deciding by a 50 plus one vote that, you know, a state the Democrats won by, you know, 55, 56% of the vote. No, no, actually, you know, we found some irregularities. Uh, the, this this one's going for Trump. <laughs> Fantastic. It, it's wonderful. I remember a moment about 10 years ago, kind of around, I don't know, this isn't a scientific marker at all, but maybe around the time of the Trayvon Martin killing and, and the subsequent protests after that, you would get that you would hear these things in the media that were kind of like, it's crazy. Like it feels like 1968 all over again, and like what what's happening? Didn't didn't we solve all of these problems? And two years ago, after the George Floyd murder, there was this enormous outpouring, millions of people in the street protesting. I think there was a moment when a lot of people, even the most cynical among us, were thinking, "Well, what what could this lead to? Like this looks like the Million Man March all over again. Is is there actually going to be something, anything that comes out of this?" And of course, you know, police budgets <laughs> just went up <laughs> all across the United States. The, the Democrats uh, retook control of the U.S. government, and Biden used his State of the Union to say, "We are." going to fund, fund, fund the police. And now, you know, here we are in a moment when Roe v. Wade has just been overturned. The, the moment that people have been fearing and dreading for 50 years. And yeah, and which a moment which signifies the beginning of a, a concerted assault on basic rights, which I think, I mean, I don't know, certainly in recent history, uh, really has no precedent. I mean, some of the things that are now possible. And I think another thing that's striking about this moment, and which is a big part of what defines it as well, is that as all this stuff is happening, you know, the official response you know, from the liberal establishment is one of, I mean, really unfathomable cynicism and complacency. I mean, I was saying this to you uh, before we started recording, but I'm someone who's partly built a career on, you know, criticizing the ineptitude and impotence and hypocrisy and complacency of liberals. And I mean, even I've been surprised by how senior figures in the Democratic Party in particular have reacted to this moment. I mean, you know, there's all this kind of 
of absurd things, which kind of happened uh, er- earlier this week. You know, Nancy Pelosi reading that poem that she's, you know, I think read before in relation to some, you know, different horrible thing. There was, you know, uh, those House Democrats singing God Bless America. Nancy Pelosi then went to Rome and uh, <laughs> took took the Eucharist from-, yeah, from from the from the Pope himself. Yeah. But I mean, in addition to all that, you also have kind of the official political response, which I mean, just, uh, you know, it surprised even somebody as cynical about liberals as me. You know, in the last few days, there's been this, you know, kind of rhetorical pivot from Biden on like, oh, well, maybe I do support, you know, altering the filibuster rules so that we could codify Roe versus Wade. I think, you know, talk is cheap and that kind of thing is kayfabe, and we're going to see a lot more of it. But I mean, the, the official line from the administration, this is quoting from the reporter Alex Thompson. He tweeted yesterday, and I, I think he's quoting from his own article, Biden and officials are concerned that more radical moves would be politically polarizing ahead of November's midterm elections, undermine public trust in institutions like the Supreme Court, or lack strong legal footing. The fact that the the official response from the White House is, you know, it, it, it remains a political priority for us to preserve public trust in the legitimacy of this institution. In the month between the decision being leaked and the decision being made official, the biggest official thing that happened was a, some bipartisan legislation to bulk up security around the homes of the Supreme Court justices. <laughs> and in the meantime, much was invested in this January 6th show trial that's going on, which is still being heavily invested in even after even after the ruling. And, you know, Roe v. Wade, this thing that people have been worrying about for 50 years gets overturned. I get that the Democratic Party is not going to do anything about it. I get they're going to be cynical about it. But where is the equivalent fake thing to protect it as the January 6th commission. Where's the, where's the equivalent piece of performance art? They, they're not even doing that. They're well, sending fundraising emails. No, no, no. But see, that's I, I'm really glad you brought that up because it's it's a good question in a way. And I think the answer is revealing. You know, why are they able to so invest so much? And why is the kind of centrist liberal imagination able to invest so much in these January 6th hearings while having this, you know, comparatively muted reaction to the overturning of Roe versus Wade? I think the answer, you know, I'll I'll return to that quote I just read from Alex Thompson about how, you know, the administration is concerned about things that are politically polarizing, things that might undermine public trust in institutions like the Supreme Court. They're able to be invested in January 6th in this particular way, because fundamentally, January 6th, for the people most invested in it, you know, who are kind of watching uh, all of this unfold in cable news 24 hours a day, and, you know, people who watched, you know, the Mueller hearings in the exact same way, fundamentally for them, it's about, like, norms being violated. Uh, I mean, if you remember on on the day itself, on January 6th, how one of the reactions that you were constantly seeing, you know, from these like aghast cable news anchors, Anderson Cooper, etc., was, you know, it was all about how the the, these this hallowed institution had been had been soiled, had been had been sullied, it had been violated, debased. That, to me, is in a big way what this is about. I mean, the Democrats and liberals could have linked what happened on January 6th to, you know, the m- much wider onslaught against, you know, small-D democracy that is happening across the country, which includes things like what's happened with the Supreme Court. I mean, the Supreme Court, in a big way, is the ultimate achievement of sort of 40 or 50 years of right-wing politics, the goal of which has been to assert minority rule. And the assertion of minority rule is exactly what gerrymandering 
gerrymandering is about. It's what changing the rules around federal elections in uh, in individual state houses is about, so they can just sort of overturn elections that they don't like. All of this is fundamentally part of the same project, as is the stripping away of rights from various minority groups, from women, and the stripping away of civil liberties as well. It's all part of the same thing. But the liberal imagination today can only see something like January 6th or anything else through the lens of, well, this is about the legitimacy of institutions, which is the most important thing. And our role as the governing party, or I suppose, you know, this held true when they were the resistance as well, our role is to maintain the ecosystem, the cultural and political ecosystem of this country. That is the most important political priority. We have to protect and preserve the soul of America, quote unquote. I've thought so much this week about, you know, just this line from Alex Thompson's article about Biden and his and his officials being worried about, you know, radical moves that would be politically polarizing and might undermine public trust in institutions like the Supreme Court. Note the wording, by the way. It's not in the Supreme Court. It's in institutions like the Supreme Court. They, they test marketed that because they know the Supreme Court's not popular. <laughs> well, so they have to concede on some level that's like, okay, maybe you don't like them, but maybe you like other institutions. Well, right. I mean, what that implies is that, you know, the important thing, th- this is actually about, you know, a wider project of defending the legitimacy of institutions in general. And I've been thinking a lot about what this means. And it's really become clear that liberals today think that the legitimacy of institutions exists independently of the outcomes that they produce. Like public trust in institutions is just sort of, it's an entry level requirement. There are certain things that you are supposed to just be deferential to. You know, you're supposed to be deferential to Congress, even when it has, you know, uh, perpetually like a 19% approval rating and everybody knows it's just controlled by like a handful of lobbyists and corporations. You're supposed to have trust in the Supreme Court, even when there's obviously illegitimate right-wing minority control over it and it's an institution which, you know, shouldn't have the power that it does in the first place. And the list goes on and on. But that is what, you know, the people who populate the upper echelons of the Democratic Party and the sort of contemporary liberal brain trust, that's what they think. They think we have this country and it has these institutions and their legitimacy is just axiomatic. And a lack of public trust in them is a spiritual crisis. It's not the extension of politics. It's not symptomatic in any way of a rot in these institutions. Meanwhile, you know, conservatives just look at these institutions and like their view of them is is entirely instrumental. It's like, is this institution useful to suit our purposes, you know, at a given time? If yes, then it's good and we want to control it. Uh, If no, uh, we're going to attack its legitimacy. Now, I don't need to specify what's wrong with that. But if the goal is actually to uh, achieve particular objectives, it's uh, it's much more effective. There's been, in general, just a muted response to the repeal of Roe v. Wade. I've been a little surprised, and I, I understand why it's happening, but I've been a little surprised that there hasn't been a sort of an in any way comparable outpouring of public protest in the way there was two years ago for George Floyd, or six years ago during the Women's March, right after Trump's inauguration. I think a lot of it is simply that people are tired. Part of it, I think, is because of the rollout of the decision. It was leaked and then it was made official a month later. So there wasn't this moment of a great explosion of energy for protests to happen. And they they presumably did that on purpose. That was almost certainly the purpose of the leak. Absolutely. But also, people are just tired. How many times can you go into the streets with nothing happening? How many times can you go into the streets with not just nothing happening, but like things getting worse? Eventually, 
you get worn out. Well, right. I mean, I think one of the most central things to understanding uh, the current political climate and the moment we're living through uh, is the fact that in 2020, the United States of America experienced, I mean, the largest uh, mass protest movement in you know modern history, possibly ever. And, you know, I don't know, a handful of statues came down, uh, but essentially nothing changed. Central, I think, to understanding this moment and so much of what uh, is frustrating about it, so much of what is kind of perplexing about the liberal affect, you know, that on the one hand, it seems to be in this constant state of emergency and, you know, warning of the apocalypse. And on the other hand, you know, its political instrument, the Democratic Party, seems completely attached to this kind of small C conservative idea that the country is an ecosystem to be maintained and, you know, can't move even a notch to the left. Obviously, there are deeper historical roots to all of this, but I think if we're just talking about the recent past, so much today can be explained by the fact that popular sentiment and, you know, popular desire, how people feel about the world around them and the the injustices they see and the things that they want to see changed, whether that discontent is registered in opinion polls or whether it's uh, registered in people filling the streets, whatever, so much can be explained by the fact that there is essentially no relation between that and the political outcomes that occur. I mean, the the institutions are almost completely severed from all of that. Whatever nexus that might have once at least partly existed, connecting people's aspirations and and desires and political values from the bottom up to an extent that they were reflected at all in political institutions, to the extent that that ever existed in the United States, it uh, it is really gone. And so you're able to have these these moments of, you know, huge popular groundswells, you know, real and genuine outrage about all kinds of things. And because there's, you know, there's nowhere for that energy to go often, there's or there are, there are few constructive places for it to go. So what it often comes to do is just sort of be ambiently reflected in the culture or maybe bring about small changes in the political rhetoric of certain establishment figures or whatever. You know, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are going to bend the knee wearing a kente cloth or that kind of thing now we are going to get to the movie forrest gump and this movie is not worthy of that introduction but i think we wanted to have this discussion because it's all relevant to the general spirit that led us to pick forrest gump you all know forrest gump forrest gump is a quintessential piece of americana released in 1994 at the height of american triumphalism you know the wall has fallen five years earlier (laughs) yeah we're in the throes of full spectrum dominance (laughs) this movie was a cultural phenomenon won a million oscars universally praised by critics and i thought about it while watching the elvis movie which feels a little bit like this sort of echo of well well what if we tried to capture just a little bit of this spirit again paramount pictures presents my name's forrest gump people call me forrest gump the story of a man are you stupid or something stupid is stupid does sir who was good at just one thing Starts Wednesday, July 6th at theaters everywhere. 
I've also been thinking about Forrest Gump lately because in a recent episode, I cited a recent Tom Hanks interview in the New York Times to promote the Elvis movie. We sure do have Tom Hanks on the brain on this show, don't we? Well, he's America's ur-liberal. Like, he's very useful. It was an article published on June 15th called Tom Hanks Explains It All. And there are so many quotes in this in this article that are interesting. I'm not even saying this to make fun of him. You know, it's just that they're interesting quotes to see where the liberal imagination is at right now. Well, it's like, right, who cares what's at stake and what Tom Hanks thinks about anything, except that he's the perfect barometer for a certain current of opinion. So on a recent episode, we... we cited this quote that he he talked about, about how he's not cynical about American politics, and he's also not nostalgic. It's a common misconception, he he says, that he makes this entertainment that's boomer nostalgia, but actually he is very interested in interrogating the past. So the interviewer asks, so with the benefit of hindsight, do you think Forrest Gump overcame its nostalgic impulses or succumbed to them? Tom Hanks says, oh, it overcame them. The problem with Forrest Gump is that it made a billion dollars. If we'd just made a successful movie, Bob and I, that's Robert Zemeckis, the director, Bob and I would have been geniuses. But because we made a wildly successful movie, we were diabolical geniuses. Is it a bad problem to have? No. But there are books of the greatest movies of all time, and Forrest Gump doesn't appear because, oh, it's this sappy nostalgia fest. Every year there's an article that goes, the movie that should have won Best Picture, and it's always Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction is a masterpiece without a doubt. Look, I don't know. But there is a moment of undeniable, heartbreaking humanity in Forrest Gump when Gary Sinise, he's playing Lieutenant Dan, and his Asian wife walk up to our house on the day that Forrest and Jenny get married. I just want to read again also from something that I read from this interview a couple weeks ago. This interview is in my bloodstream now. He says, Cynicism is the default position in an awful lot of entertainment. How many knockoff versions of Chinatown have you seen? Eight million. The conflict of cynicism is glamorous, gorgeous. Violence is glamorous and gorgeous. But it's cynical, and I'm not a cynic. Now, this sighting of Chinatown is stuck in my head because, you know, if, if you've seen Chinatown, you, you'll know that, yes, it is it is cynical. It's, it's black-pilled, I think you could say, with that incredible final scene of just the monstrous, evil character played by John Huston, this oligarch committing incest in his own family. He, he gets away with it. And Jack Nicholson is looking on and they say, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. There's something so bleak and horrible about that. But, you know, Luke, you were telling me uh, before we watched the movie about House of Cards, which traffics in a different kind of cynicism. Yeah, well, this just happened to come up, I think, because Robin Wright is in Forrest Gump. And believe it or not, I'd never seen Forrest Gump until today. Incredible. Which, you know, (laughs) don't ask me how that happened. But I was saying, you know, oh, apart from The Princess Bride, I don't think I've ever seen Robin Wright in anything except for House of cards. And then, you know, you hadn't seen House of Cards. So this prompted a whole conversation about that show. My perception of House of Cards is it's like Kevin Spacey, he's the ultimate uh, Washington wheeler and dealer. And it's like, hello, hello, folks, I'm out there. And uh, I know how the system really works. And uh, when you got the House of Cards all piled up, those those cards come falling down. That's a really good Kevin Kevin Spacey. And you Um, know, when you're in when you're in the business of politics, you know that it's a dirty business and uh, sometimes you're gonna get your hands dirty but you and i you and i we know that so like it's 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 that it's basically <laughs> like that whole show is just monologues like that but with this sort of pungent whiff of sort of shakespearean self-importance and, and gravity you know as if uh, as if you're watching 
you know, fucking King Lear or something instead of like a middle brow Netflix show. But yeah, I mean, it's it's cynical, I suppose, in the sense that Tom Hanks was complaining about in that interview, because it's like, oh, yeah, look, Washington, uh, folks, it's it's debased and corrupt. I mean, of course, it's it's really stupid because the show doesn't work unless you believe that everybody in Washington, including the president, uh, except for Robin Wright and Kevin Spacey, is just like a total rube. Like everyone in the show, uh, including Kate Mara, the journalist in the first season, everybody is so effortlessly manipulated. So it doesn't even really work on that level. But what I'm getting, like the, the cynicism is there's a redemptive side to the cynicism, which is that you, the viewer, are in on it with Kevin Spacey. You, like you're smart. He's smart. We're both we both see through this system. Well, and, and it's a good observation. You haven't seen the show, so you wouldn't even know this. But Kevin Spacey, one of the famous devices in that show is that he constantly breaks the fourth wall and like talks to you. OK, but in, at the end of Chinatown, which Tom Hanks cites as this corrupting influence on American culture, <laughs> like, yeah, it's cynical, but it's like, oh, John Houston, the incestuous oligarch, he's just going to fucking do it in front of you. He's going to grab his own granddaughter at the end of the movie after he's killed his daughter. And he's and he's going to say, come with me, dear, while Jack Nicholson looks on powerless to do anything. It's like John Houston knows you see him and he doesn't care. Tell, you can tell me if it's a difference of degree or kind in cynicism. No, it's not a difference of degree. It's what you just described is is actual cynicism. It's it's a moral cynicism that's like, that's almost constructive in a way. It's a type of cynicism with profound weight and with profound uh, moral implications. Whereas the type of cynicism that you find in something like House of Cards, which I think is the much more common kind of quote unquote cynicism you find throughout American culture, you know, is as you say uh, this thing that's constantly. Winking at you. And it's a type of cynicism that by winking at you suffocates that moral gravity that we were describing because what it's really saying is, well, we're all in on this, and that's the great American experiment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Now I don't necessarily know if we're any we're any closer to getting to the movie itself, but I do think that Forrest Gump is a, is a very cynical movie with no great moral weight and uh, just just an, an evil film. Can, can I, just I mean, say, wretched. I mean, I'd never seen this movie. I hate this movie. Okay, uh, this, this is one of the worst things I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I do want to make clear we don't think we're being iconoclast by saying this because yes, Forrest Gump was very well received at the time. But there have been many dissenting voices on it over the years. And uh, Luke, you pointed out to me that on the Wikipedia page, under reception, there's a section that says critical reception, and then a section that says reevaluation, which begins, since the 21st century, the film has been reevaluated and has moved lower in many critics' opinions. Yeah, I found that on the Wikipedia page, but I also found uh, I also found some other stuff that uh, made me laugh. Like, uh, right at the top, there's a sentence that just says, varying interpretations have been made of the protagonist and the film's political symbolism. <laughs> there's also a point five on the Wikipedia page is just symbolism, and there's a whole thing about the feather, and then political interpretations, and that begins with a quote where it says, Hank states that, quote, the film is non-political and that's non-judgmental. Oh yeah, it's non-political, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Elvis movie aside, I was interested in watching this movie because I do think that this is a movie that if you showed it to many people today, they would be shocked. And, you know, this is a movie of a particular time and place. And it would be, again, Elvis movie aside, which is a very different kind of thing in a lot of ways. Uh, it would be impossible to make a movie like this now and have it be received in the same way. I think it would just be impossible to make this movie now. I do think it's important to know before we get into the plot how vigorously the people in 
involved in this movie have insisted that it is non-political. <laughs> the producer, uh, Steve Tisch, said, All over the political map, people have been calling Forrest their own. But Forrest Gump isn't about politics or conservative values. It's about humanity. It's about respect, tolerance, and unconditional love. Now, interestingly, at the time, the film very much was uh, claimed by the right. Bob Dole stated the film's message was, quote, No matter how great the adversity, the American dream is within everybody's reach. Some people argued that the film forecast uh, the 94 Republican Revolution and, and was basically sort of Gingrichism turned into a film you know, because of the way it idealizes the 1950s in particular. Uh, the National Review, the year after this movie came out, listed it as a, a part of its list of uh, 100 best conservative movies of all time. Now, obviously, it's bullshit that this film isn't political. I do think it's quite a reactionary, even revanchist film. I think all those elements are there, but I think it also has this more kind of small C conservative element that we were uh, that we were talking about off the top of the show. And I think perhaps that's the thing that was most striking to me about it. Well, the movie famously opens with that shot of the feather blowing in the wind. Oh, my God. What could it mean? What could it symbolize? Perhaps the feather is all of us. Perhaps the feather is history itself. Perhaps all of us are just feathers in the wind and history is blowing us to and fro. And who knows? Who knows where we will end up? The feather lands on a simple man named Forrest Gump, an Alabama native of low IQ played by America's dad, Tom Hanks. He's sitting at a bus stop holding a box of chocolates, which, not unlike life, is a proposition where you do not know what you're going to okay, get. Okay, can I just say, this is how stock and cliche and trite this movie is, that the structuring conceit of it right off the top is Forrest Gump dishing out this pearl of wisdom, you know, you know, Ma would always tell me life is like a box of chocolates you never know what you're gonna get now that expression is so cliche i don't think i've ever heard it once used in my lifetime uh seriously like it's a cliche's cliche it's the thing that comes up when you do a google search for what a cliche is like it's the example that's how banal this movie actually is that it's it's structured around that in a totally earnest way forrest he's a simple man he has a low iq but he's a good man he has a good heart and he starts telling his extraordinary life story to whoever at the bus stop will listen to it inflicts it on various unfortunate interlocutors who happen to be on the bench he was raised at a southern rooming house by his mother played by sally field there were many different boarders who came through the house including in fact a young elvis presley and it was forrest in his in the leg braces that he wore as a child struggling to walk that inspired elvis presley to become the hip swinging rock star that he became this is one of many examples in the film of uh, cute moments where forrest intersects with a significant figure of 20th century history and and does the thing that they became famous for Th- this scene is so funny elvis is basically you know he's he's figuring out hound dog on the guitar but there's an ingredient missing and yeah obviously the point of this scene is that you know forrest just happens to teach elvis how to shake his hips that way but of course it's also stupid because i think the implication is that elvis is composing hound dog because hound dog was originally uh, popularized and, and performed by big mama thornton in the early 1950s but i think the the implication in this scene or this was my 
my this is how I interpret it anyway, that Elvis is sort of like sitting in this boarding house in Alabama and composing Hound Dog. I think that is very much in keeping with the uh, the, the politics of this movie. I, I think it's a little ambiguous. It's possible that what he was really struggling with was just figuring out his stage presence and he already had the song. But I will say that this scene, and I, I you know, I don't want to get too self-serious about this because on some level, of course, it's a joke scene that where the, the only joke is, hey, wouldn't it be funny if Forrest Gump, our protagonist, inspired Elvis to do the hip wiggling thing. But nevertheless, joke or not, it is indicative of this movie's ability to just take these events and figures of historic significance. Somebody like Elvis Presley, who was the product of so many different forces and trends, both in music and in America's socio-political life, he was the end result of all of this. And, you know, in large part, that's what's interesting about him. And it, it kind of just gets flattened in this movie into, oh, what if he saw a kid, a, dis- a disabled <laughs> kid, like, move? And that, and that's how he, he copied it. That's how he did the hip, hip wiggling thing. Right. And this is jumping ahead a bit. But I mean, the whole movie is basically that same conceit uh, repeated over and over again in relation to different people and events. I mean, the scene when Forrest Gump goes on the Dick Cavett show and he's talking about his time in China and John Lennon is next to him and Forrest is like well it was like living in a dream oh yeah well you could you could you could say you're a dreamer then <laughs> or, or like you know they, they can't they don't even have religion over there and no Whoa. religion too <laughs> I, imagine this imagine no religion <laughs> Which, again, I, I get that it's a joke. I get that it's supposed to be funny. But I mean, when the, but the movie believes it, too. The movie doesn't understand that th- these events are actually products of contexts. Right. That is the metaphysics of Forrest Gump, if you will. History is just something that happens. It's both entirely arbitrary, but it's also a matter of historical destiny. That thesis is ventriloquized uh, through a number of characters in the movie who just say stuff like, you know, I think his dying mother at uh, one point says, we all have a destiny. It's all part of a plan. Well, then there's his army buddy, Lieutenant Dan. This is going way forward. I don't, we don't really need to synopsize the plot of this movie. Most... You've seen Forrest Gump. Yeah. Lieutenant Dan has always dreamed of dying on the battlefield because all of his ancestors have died on the battlefield of some war or other. And now it's Vietnam and it's Dan's turn, but Forrest Gump saves him. He's lost both his legs in combat, though, and for a time, for a period of the movie, Lieutenant Dan is very upset at Forrest for robbing him of his destiny. This was the plan. But then, eventually, though, Lieutenant Dan learns that you can make your own destiny, in a way. And isn't that isn't that what's great about America? We, we should say that, you know, <laughs> Forrest also has some military ancestry. Uh, right at the beginning oh, yeah. of the movie, we we learn that he was named for a great Civil War general named Forrest. And well, shucks, he used to get together with some folks who liked to put on white sheets and go riding on the horses. Ma used to say, sometimes we all do things that don't make no sense. Yeah, I mean, that's a scene, you know, we see footage from Birth of a Nation. <laughs> it's just with the ride of the clan scene. Yeah, and that's a scene that could only have been done in a context in a period in the 90s where they're like, okay, racism is over, so we, we can joke about these things now, right? Yeah, capitalism is the only thing left standing. It's 1994. We're, we're in a post-racial society. So yeah, here's the ride of the clan. Anyway, the other important character to mention is Jenny. Jenny is Forrest's boyhood friend. She's a sweet girl. She protects him from the bullies. She teaches him to read. She's just a terrific girl. Uh, she comes from an abusive household. There's the implication that her father sexually abuses her, and at some point he's taken away by the police. Now, this sexual abuse becomes the trauma that takes her down the dark path 
path of counterculture and the anti-war movement and uh, eventually the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, okay. So uh, I hate to say it's not funny. This I hate is, to say it. This is the most evil thing about this whole film. And, and this is probably uh, the biggest reason why conservatives seem to like it so much. None of the characters in this film really have much depth or agency as characters. But that's especially true of Jenny, who we just see throughout this movie. Uh, I mean, she's just a device who, you know, she's just kind of a stand-in for various phases of kind of counterculture or alternative culture or really just anything that is outside of sort of, you know, the white middle class uh, mainstream. So we see her get it, you know, yeah, she's involved in the anti-war movement. Then she gets into uh, disco at one point. At one point, there's a pretty remarkable scene, a scene that doesn't really make any sense where uh, Forrest finds out that, you know, she's performing and he wants to go see her. Uh, and then she's performing something that's, you know, it's kind of like a strip club. And she's performing here after she's been kicked out of college for posing for Playboy magazine. That's right. And so she's uh, she's playing Blowing in the Wind uh, naked and everyone, I don't know, starts booing or whatever. And he kind of pulls her off the stage and she's like, you can't keep rescuing me all the time. Yeah, I mean, he he is legitimately Travis Bickle in this movie. Um, a very funny detail. In Jenny's dorm room in college, she has a poster on the wall for Joan Baez. And like, again, she, she's like, hey, folks, it's the 60s. Yeah, but but it's not Herman's Hermits, right? It's not Gary Lewis and the Playboys. It's Joan Baez on the wall. And then when she's at that strip club, she's singing Blowing in the Wind, which is the movie's way of sort of conflating all protest music with, tell me if I'm overreaching here, but conflating all protest music with the seedy underbelly of degradation Th- things that things that we don't like the, the uh, things that remind us of the sexual revolution and you know the 60s counterculture the anti-war movement this movie had a soundtrack budget that could fund a trip to mars okay <laughs> every song from a, a time life two cd music of the 60s <laughs> album is on here you know come on baby light my fire you know all that shit and here's to you mrs robinson uh, uh, Joan Baez is not on the soundtrack of this movie, I think. You don't hear protest music. You hear 60s music. That's right. The music in this movie, I mean, these are, it's less music than it is just sort of like audio cues. You know, it's part of like the mise-en-scene. It's there to tell you, all right, folks, it's a new decade. Or all right, you're about to hear some whirring helicopter blades, that kind of thing. When Forrest gets back from Vietnam and he gets a medal in Washington, he accidentally finds himself on stage at an anti-war protest being hosted hosted by Abby Hoffman, who uh, Forrest identifies only as a man who says the F word a lot. And that's what Abby Hoffman, that's what that's what the whole protest movement is to this movie. It's like, what's like, this is a movie that's in the 90s made by liberals. Yeah. And, and it's saying, okay, what was with these long hairs and their and their foul language? Well, then there's that amazing scene after where Forrest finds herself with Jenny at this kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's just like, it's left wing HQ. <laughs> it's just like they threw they throw everything into the scene. It's like there's a poster of Che Guevara, and then she's there with her boyfriend, and she's just like he's president of the Berkeley SDS chapter or something. And but then, then there's the a black, bunch of Black Panthers the, there. The Black like, Panthers are also the the Black Panthers and the Students for a Democratic Society are all just, just in this every every in this office. Thing. It's just a bunch of like generic you know hippies that are there and stuff. Uh, and then her SDS boyfriend like hits her or whatever. Just starts beating her in the middle of this office in front of Forrest, and Forrest retaliates, and then there's a chilling shot where Forrest is on his way out.
out and he looks back and he looks we get a point of view shot of just all the black panthers looking at him and i swear it is like a travis bickle point of view shot from taxi driver it's so racist <laughs> you pointed out that uh he actually is really angry and violent in this film at various points the movie does not properly reckon with that i think the movie thinks it's good the, the movie actually thinks that he's doing this for jenny's good like she gets well, well the, f- the first time that he beats someone up it's when her college boyfriend or just someone she's hooking up with you know drives her up to beside her dorm in his car and then they're just having sex and Forrest comes and just starts like beating the shit out of the guy like he's there as she later puts it to rescue her right he's there to intervene in her sexual licentiousness that's going to lead her on a bad path throughout the rest of her life he's there to save her from this degenerate countercultural milieu that she's existed in where you know she's got this boyfriend who hits her who's with the SDS what does she do after he beats up this guy just outside of her car she takes Forrest up to her dorm room because I mean, this scene just makes no sense because at, at this point she's she's all horned up she's gonna have sex with someone so she sits Forrest on the bed right after this violent attack and she starts undressing and Forrest is traumatized <laughs> by the sight of her naked and she's like oh okay Forrest we don't we don't have to do that don't worry about it they do eventually, you know, three quarters of the way through the movie, after much time has passed, consummate their relationship. But Forrest, on some level, realizes that, no, he, he can't sully her right now, because she's still, she's doing this because she's on the path to licentiousness, not because she loves me. And by the way, there are there are a couple of moments in the movie where Forrest is in situations that could become sexual, and he pushes it away. He's, he's, he's tempted by the snake to take a bite out of the apple. But, but he, the way that Tom Hanks plays it it's as he ne- if but he never leaves the garden it, it, the way tom hanks plays it it's as if he doesn't understand what's happening and i'm sorry like forrest gump may have a low iq but he would have a sex drive this doesn't fit in with any political reading of the movie but i do think it's worth saying since this was the first time i saw forrest gump that like it didn't it, di- it didn't connect with me it didn't work on on really any level at all Tom Hanks's performance, I think, is, as you rightly said while we were watching it, it only works because he's Tom Hanks. The performance is so mannered. Like, you can never get around the fact that, to, to put it somewhat awkwardly, like, he's so obviously playing a character... The film is just the same uh, conceit repeated over and over again. There's, you know, little to no real character development, I don't think. And there are just basic things about it that don't make any sense, because the whole conceit of Forrest Gump is supposed to be that he's an everyman who just kind of earnestly reacts to the world around him. And you get far enough into the movie and you're like, okay... How is it that after he comes back from Vietnam, decorated apparently, he appears to be wearing an officer's uniform, he ends up just working on a on a shrimp boat and sort of doing a pretty bad job. You know, he inherits his dead war buddy's shrimp business and is and at first is unable to have any success as a as a shrimp fisherman. But then when he starts praying to God, he does have success as a fisherman, (laughs) which the movie is like kidding, not kidding, (laughs) kidding, not kidding. But, But it's like by the time he's become a shrimp fisherman, it's like, okay, he's already been like a a successful college athlete he's met three presidents been in many iconic images he's He's been he's become the most famous ping pong champion in america to the point where there is actually a merchandising empire around him like he's like he's like how homer simpson like won a grammy and went to space and did all this stuff but he's still working at the power plant 
And somebody might say, well, that's the joke, but it's not actually people, the joke. People don't it's not the joke. People don't recognize him, and it's like, okay, he's met three presidents, and he's been on the Dick Cavett show next to John Lennon. If he was on that show next to John Lennon, we would still be watching that on YouTube right now. He's on the cover of Fortune magazine. Anyway, once he gets his big fortune, once he becomes both the most famous shrimp baron in America and an early investor in Apple stock, <laughs> he's able to basically retire, use his money for good work. He, don- he donates his money to some good causes, doesn't he? Like the church and another <laughs> church and this church and that church. Forrest found out that there were some people out there who wanted to murder babies, and he wanted to make sure <laughs> that money was in place to stop the murder of babies. There were there was some folks I met who wanted to keep the Southern heritage alive. So I chipped in a few bucks. I met a woman named Anita Bryant, and she had some alarming things she said about what men would do with other men. And for three years, I followed Anita Bryant from state to state. Now, none of that's in the movie, but what he does... Might as well be. Might as well. (laughs) He reconnects with Jenny, who who comes crawling back to live with him on his estate. They they have a beautiful time together. Uh, she becomes pregnant with child, but the intimacy is too much for a woman as sullied as she has become. I mean, that is what the movie is saying. And so she, she leaves, she runs off, and that leads to the famous bit where he runs all around the country, blah, 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 blah. And then finally, uh, at the end of the movie, she wants him back again. They get married. It's the, it's the early 80s, and the film tells us that she's, uh, she's become ill with something. Something which it doesn't specify, but I mean, the film, which is already outrageously sexist, then just crosses like a further Rubicon. I mean, what what could this unspecified illness in 1981 that the doctors don't know what it is, and there's there's no cure, there's certainly no research for this, and there there certainly uh, won't be any treatment for it for a while. What disease could this possibly be that that a woman? of her moral standing could... God, it's so vile. Ultimately, the movie partway redeems Jenny by letting her, sort of at the 11th hour, recommit to a normal suburban life, and to let Forrest Gump's DNA prosper and turn into a new person. But, you know, she she ultimately has to be punished in some way for her transgressions. Yeah, she survives long enough to become a Reagan Democrat, (laughs) as God intended. We, we forgot to mention this, but we should probably also mention that, uh, you know, it's kind of a throwaway scene, which is hilarious, but Forrest Gump is also what brings down Nixon and Watergate. Oh, yeah, that's funny. Because <laughs> he just happens to see the robbery taking place, and he calls the police, and, and he's like, you guys should send your janitor to check out what's going on across the street. <laughs> In that scene, I see, like, the kernel of a movie that I might like. Imagine if the perspective of this movie were torqued as such that it's not necessarily good that this is the everyman american you compared the movie while we were watching it to being there and what if the movie were more like being there where it's like good or bad this guy is is your everyman and his simplicity is not a moral beacon that we should be striving towards but he is just the american everyman and deal he, with he's it. he's a cipher for the i don't even think he's i don't think chauncey gardner of being there is supposed to be the american everyman i think he's meant to be a cipher for the world around him and a device to illustrate you know the hollowness of politics in a, in a mass media media age and that kind of thing. Or another film this reminded me of, I mean, there's so many much better movies that have a conceit that's kind of like this. I mean, Robert Altman's Nashville, which is a favorite film of both of ours, is a sort of epic movie that, you know, shows you all these things, shows you all these pieces of Americana, and at least on the surface, doesn't purport to have any perspective on them. 
Although I'd argue if you watch it carefully, it, it, it definitely has a real perspective and an interesting one, which Forrest Gump does not. Forrest Gump never goes beyond life is like a box of chocolates. Uh, we all have a destiny. It's part of a plan. It never goes beyond the feather blowing in the wind, which is how the movie ends as well. And you better stay in line or else you are, you are going to die. Now, when I was a baby, mama named me after the great Civil War hero, General Nathan Bedford Forrest. She said we was related to him in some way, and what he did was he started up this club called the Ku Klux Klan. They'd all dress up in their robes and their bedsheets and act like a bunch of ghosts or spooks or something. They'd even put bedsheets on their horses and ride around. And anyway, that's how I got my name, Forrest Gump. I mean, in terms of where to situate this movie politically, you know, there was there was a commentary in the 90s that I cited before that the film is really Gingrichism. And it's certainly uh, revanchist in ways that I think validates that point of view. But I would posit that this film is really truly bipartisan in the worst possible way. I mean, after the 1994 midterms, one of Clinton's advisors famously summed up their strategy in the words, fast track the Gingrich agenda. That was going to be the new strategy of the Democratic White House. So I think rather than seeing this movie as either as either liberal or as conservative, I think it's kind of both in the worst possible ways. I think it's a truly bipartisan partisan piece of culture in the way that the musical Hamilton was or something like that. Like Hamilton, I mean, I think if there is a structuring idea to this movie, apart from its rather kind of ethereal idea of history, which in fact, this is just what I'm going to say is just an extension of the same thing. I mean, the core ideology of this movie is just American exceptionalism. There is a current in American culture going right back to the Puritan settlement, which is really just the idea that this country is not like any other country. This is a country with a divine destiny. That, I think, is the underlying uh, current that this movie is channeling, the skeleton on which, you know, the, its, uh, its hollow nostalgia ultimately sits. So uh, what do you think is going to happen in Forrest Gump 2 when Zemeckis and Hanks get together to recap the last 30 years? Well, uh, given the moment that we're living in right now, I mean, I don't know, maybe it turns out, you know, Forrest Gump is in the Senate hearings where Clarence Thomas gets confirmed. And, you know, he's they Photoshop him in next to, you know, Joe Biden or whatever. And just through some, you know, arbitrary thing that Forrest Gump does, you know, uh, he's the one that swings those four Democratic votes or whatever it was uh, that are yay votes for Thomas. Maybe Forrest will be looking for work in New York one day and he gets hired by a shadowy firm to plant these strange devices around the World Trade Center on various different floors. And then a couple days later, what, what, what happens there? <laughs> yeah, Forrest is there in the, in the Brooks Brothers riot, which swings <laughs> the election for Bush. Anyway, I don't think we need to say too much more about this movie. Uh, it sucks. I hated it. it. In a way, when you think about it, life is like a box of chocolates because you never know what you're going to get. Uh, except if you have the little the little guide that, that tells you which chocolate is which. But, but, I mean, but, but you're not supposed to use the guide, right? Because the guide is ideology. And that's very naughty. <laughs> To close out this one, uh, I did want to read a little bit uh, from a great essay in Harper's uh, from a few years ago by one of my favorite writers, Thomas Frank. This is an article about the historian John Meacham, and uh, it's you know formally a review of The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels, which was published by Random House a few years ago, um, and then The Soul of America, HBO uh, documentary that accompanied it in 2020. 
Now, I'm going to read from the article, but uh, what's, what's most important here and, and why I'm reading this now, uh, not just because it reminds me in some ways of Forrest Gump, but also because Joe Meacham is Joe Biden's favorite historian. Okay, let's see which fortune cookie scribblings <laughs> we're going to hear about now. Right. In the, in the worst possible way, Joe Meacham and his conception of history makes him the man for the moment. Frank begins, it's the beginning of the new HBO documentary based on the work of the celebrated historian John Meacham, and here he comes ambling through his tastefully decorated home. We glimpse autograph photos, Toby Juggs, old prints, comforting Americana. The prize-winning biographer of Jefferson and Jackson, Jefferson and Jackson, slowly makes his way to a TV studio in the basement where he looks at the camera and strikes a contemplative pose. The voice of a TV host can be heard. Joining me now, NBC News contributor and historian John Meacham. Give me a history lesson. It's a complicated and fraught history, we hear Meacham reply. The Wise Man Act is a familiar role for Meacham these days. During the Trump years, he appeared on MSNBC some 500 times, doling out lessons in pastness to an audience of anxious liberals. In the same period, he produced a dizzying number of essays, podcasts, and books, including his 2018 opus, The Soul of America. Generally speaking, Meacham has played his appointed part well, discanting with deliberation before a public that craved confirmation of Donald Trump's record-breaking churlishness and at the same time assurance that everything was going to be okay, an act that was complicated and sometimes even fraught. What deserves more scrutiny amid this blizzard of commentary is the historian's other role as a maker of history in his own right, specifically as a friend and informal advisor to President Joe Biden. I say this, and yet the relationship between the two men has never been a secret. Bidenly openly swiped Meacham's book for the title of his campaign last year, calling on voters again and again to rescue the country's soul from Trumpism. In October, the Democratic candidate sent a bus around the country, marked Battle for the Soul of the Nation. In both his victory speech and his inaugural address, he declared that soul restoration was to be the number one priority of his administration. Biden even interviewed Meacham, reversing the usual relationship between historians and politician at a University of Delaware event back in 2019. Meacham, for his part, endorsed Biden last summer in a talk at the Democratic Convention, explaining his concept of the soul of America to a primetime audience. We also know that Meacham helped to write a number of Biden's speeches, including one that he then proceeded to praise as a commentator on MSNBC, a minor conflict of interest that ruffled some feathers on the network. And his influence is ongoing. A few months ago, Meacham reportedly assembled a panel of historians to meet with the president at the White House, where, one presumes, they offered their collective sagacity on the challenges of the day. He is the intellectual of the moment, this soft-spoken biographer of great men. Meacham whispers in the president's ear and appears on TV constantly. His books are bestsellers, they win prizes, they are endorsed by Oprah, but his ideas are not widely analyzed. Apart from a recent essay in Mother Jones, I was able to find few discussions of Meacham's contributions to Democratic Party thinking or even to the discipline of history. What does it tell us about Biden-era liberalism that this is one of its defining voices? Ordinarily, I would not consider Meacham a liberal at all. He is, for starters, virtually a worshipper of Ronald Reagan, whom he eulogized at length and with embarrassing sentimentality in Newsweek in 2004. George H.W. Bush, the subject of an admiring 880-page biography published in 2015, seems to rank only slightly lower in his estimation. In 2018, Meacham spoke affectionately at Bush's funeral. As for Meacham's journalistic output in the aughts, 
He helped to popularize the fatuous notion that America is a naturally center-right nation where radical change is contrary to our nature. During a 2009 global financial crisis, he wrote a cover story for Newsweek describing the bank bailouts engineered by George W. Bush as an act of socialism, a deliberate confusion of right and left that found an immediate audience with Tea Party types. Come to think of it, there's something Tea Party-ish about the whole genre of presidential history, the category into which most of Meacham's literary output falls. Think of what this species of scholarship entails. The near worship of the founding fathers, the focus on great men to the exclusion of most other historical factors, the fetishizing of trivial historical details, such as how many times Dwight D. Eisenhower cried in public, a question Meacham discussed with another presidential historian on MSNBC last year. It cannot be called a coincidence that these were also the basic ingredients of the famous right-wing uprising of a decade ago, with its snake flags, its call-and-response quotations of the founders, its sappy salutes to the great presidents delivered by people such as the Fox News personality Glenn Beck, who stood at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial one day in 2010 and urged his fans to restore the virtues of these heroic personages in this fallen age of the interloper Obama. All through the years of the liberal white-collar resistance, Meacham did basically the same thing, with the script only slightly altered. As the news cycle became dominated by the interloper Trump, and by Trump only, presidential history became the only thing that mattered. Here, Meacham the historian would intone is how Trump resembles Richard Nixon or Andrew Johnson. Here is how Trump fails to live up to the high standards of dignity set by FDR or Abraham Lincoln. And here is how Trump is just off the charts, the worst president who has ever walked the halls of the White House. Now, I'm not going to read this whole essay, uh, even though I could, because it's wonderful and beautifully written. We're now coming to Thomas Frank's summary of, uh, you know, the core of Meacham's philosophy. And this is what I want to leave you all with on this episode. Frank continues, the historian pulled this all together in the soul of America, an account of the country's long wrestling match with intolerance. Here was the presidential history formula for difficult moral times. Maybe America's leaders weren't so awesome after all, Meacham admitted. Maybe America wasn't such a decent country either. Yes, it had good impulses, but it also had bad ones. And sometimes the bad ones got the upper hand. It's a weighty concept, this soul stuff. Here is how Meacham explained it in the documentary last year. The soul of the country is, in fact, this essence, which is not all good or all bad. You have your better angels fighting against your worse impulses, and that has a religious component, certainly. It's also, though, a matter of historical observation. So, there is good in America, Meacham tells us, and there is also bad. These are history's diagnostic categories. People in the past have done fine things, and they have done wicked things. As the book's subtitle puts it, our history is an unending battle for our better angels, a theory the historian borrowed from a speech by Lincoln. It's the dialectic of history imagined for a new Manichaean generation. Things that are good exist in eternal conflict with things that are bad. The imperative facing intellectuals, meanwhile, and presumably politicians as well, is to inform us that good things are good, and also to proclaim to the world that bad things are bad. I feel like you could not find a more concise summary of the way that a certain kind of centrist liberal, and dare I say it, liberals at least heavily of a certain generation, have reacted to the past five or six years, or how uh, establishment liberals are currently reacting to this new phase of crisis with the Supreme Court. Again, the country is just an ecosystem that has to be maintained. The existence and legitimacy of institutions is axiomatic and sacrosanct, regardless of what those institutions actually do or how they're being used, and regardless of how rotten they've become. Any kind of radical or disruptive response to the awful things that are currently going on has to be off the table. Because at the end of the day, America is an exceptional country. It has a divine destiny 
and its history up to this point and all of the good people see in it is all part of a destiny and it's all part of a plan. It's all the product of, as, as Frank characterizes it in relation to John Meacham, the dialectic of good and bad. It's the continuum Forrest Gump exists on, you know? He comes in contact with the righteous and the wicked of the 20th century. He comes into contact with the degenerate and also the wholesome. His great-great-grandfather was a Confederate general and a founder of the Ku Klux Klan. But hey, here he is on the Dick Cavett show. Here he is exposing the Watergate burglary, whatever. None of history is driven by wider social forces at all, and it's certainly not driven by collective action or struggle or concerted efforts to change things. Change happens. Sometimes it's for the good, sometimes it's for the bad, but all we can really do is sit here reading our John Meacham books and watching it all pass us by like feathers in the wind. 